Hey, it's Josiah. Before we get started with this episode, I have something very special to share with you. You know, we've delved deep into what it means to be an Enneagram 5 together for the past few years, especially with our friend of the show, Sam Greenberg, or as many of you know her, the Enneagram expert. And now we want to go even deeper with you. We've worked together with Sam to craft an online workshop exclusively for type 5s to help you unlock the secrets of connection with every Enneagram type. This is not just another generic workshop. It's a deep dive into understanding and nurturing relationships tailored specifically for your unique perspective. Imagine getting practical, actionable insights on connecting with each of the nine Enneagram types all through the lens of a type five. Sam's going to guide you on how to build meaningful relationships, sharing strategies and insights specifically designed for fives. I've seen firsthand how Sam's insights can transform understanding and communication. And I'm so excited to partner with her to bring this exclusive workshop to you. Whether you're looking to deepen current relationships or navigate new ones, this workshop is a game changer for fives seeking genuine connection. Spots are limited, and trust me, you don't want to miss this. So head over to Enneagram5.com connection to secure your place and begin your journey towards richer, more authentic connections. Once again, go to Enneagram5.com connection or visit the link in the description to get your ticket to the workshop today. a special treat because this isn't just a conversation with me and Cody because um, we are woefully uh, inexperienced to actually be able to yeah ill-equipped to (laughs) to answer this question Uh, so we have uh, with us today uh, a special guest who is a clinical social worker and um, I, I can already tell by the, the, the pre-conversation that we had that we uh, made a good choice and who we chose to bring in on this conversation. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Liz Landry. Liz, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's get started with uh, first give a, to give us a little bit of context <laughs> on what is a clinical social worker and why that um, why that matters for this conversation? <laughs> yeah, great question. So a clinical social worker is um, basically a therapist. You can be a therapist a lot of different ways. You can be a psychiatrist who prescribes medicine. You can be a marriage and family therapist who typically does work with like systems, like families or partners. You can be a clinical social worker like me who cares about like social justice on a bigger scale. And so as opposed to the other types of therapists, I kind of see social justice as a a part of my therapy and it's like an integral part of the training. Um, So what I do now is I work in a hospital, I work outpatient um, as a psychotherapist. So I like talk to people like this every day and um, figure out what's wrong with them. What are their goals? How are we going to get there? (laughs) Awesome. So the reason why we're having this conversation is because uh, many times Cody has been (laughs) accused of being a sociopath. (laughs) Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm pretty sure a lot of fives can relate to that. And I know that I've sometimes at my darkest points have wondered uh, the same thing about myself. And so we wanted to delve into this with someone who actually knows what they're talking about and and uncover, you know, what what it what it means to be a sociopath or not to be a sociopath and and how we could figure that out and you know how we can you know like where do we go from here so that's the conversation that that we're having so first i wanted to start with uh with you cody and just share with us why why you think that you've been accused of being a sociopath and why sometimes you feel like you might be Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm really glad I had alcohol for this conversation. (laughs) Um, So I have in many instances in my life, in many stages in my life, been accused of such things because 
I very consistently kind of naturally detach from emotion and feel very robotic and or um, emotionless or heartless. I've been definitely accused of being heartless many times in my life. The idea that um, throughout my teenage years, there was this idea, this kind of theme through my life that I was using relationships as a, as a, as a, as a means to an end and also as completely a means for just what can I get out of this relationship? How can I manipulate the situation to continue to keep it, keep control over what's happening and genuinely and ultimately deep down did not give a shit about the other person's feelings or what they wanted out of the relationships or what they, and honestly got almost like a thrill and a, uh, almost like an addictive behavior out of, or addictive feeling out of people not being able to read me or understand me or get behind the facade as it were. And keep control over the situation. And I think that that kind of started the process, but what actually was going on kind of deep down is that I, you know, it's kind of been this ongoing thing where like, I didn't actually feel, realize this until I was in my twenties that it was over, uh, over many conversations with different people and stuff where I realized that everybody else actually has this like voice in their head that tells them what's right and wrong and how to like empathize with people. I can facilitate that and I can manifest that uh, enough to uh, connect with people. But at the deep down darkest level, I don't ever feel bad or guilty for anything that I've ever done. Like I don't have that in me and I've never had that. My brother is actually oddly enough, exactly the same way we've talked about it. And we're just like, we feel like aliens in the world all the time because I've always kind of been like, I don't know. I've, I've always just kind of lived by this idea or this code of like doing right and wrong is more of like a, an idea of kind of self, like a survivalist mentality, right? Like being in society and being functional and being able to kind of blend in and move, move throughout my day and not be pegged as anything that's uh, out of the ordinary, I guess. And so it's, it's always been kind of a thing where it's like, I don't know, am I different or is this just like, is this normal? Is this something that is just needs to be uncovered or dealt with? Is this what everybody is accusing me of? I don't know, but it's always been kind of down to that thing where it's like in any relationship I've been into, been in like either it, it, it always comes down to that thing where like people realize and either have an issue with it or they don't, which is that I don't relate to your emotions. I don't at, at a deepest point level, I don't necessarily care about your emotions unless they have something to do with me. I can, there's a lot of things I could do a lot of things today and not feel bad about it. And I just, I just don't feel bad about it. Uh, I've never, I don't know if I've like, that was always an issue with me and my background too, with religion and always very much at, 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 in, in resistance, right? Like I never really felt fit in because this idea of guilt and sin, I was like, what does that feel like? Like, what does guilt feel like? I don't, I don't actually know because I've never felt bad about anything that I've ever done. And I'm not sure that it, any of it's wrong. So <laughs> there's so many places to go. With that. <laughs> oh yeah. So before we dig into that, we can take a step back and, and maybe talk about what it actually means to be a sociopath. Like what, what do people mean when they say that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in order to know if you're a sociopath, you have to know what that even is, right? Um, and I think I, you know, I'm a master's level mental health clinician, and I use the diagnostic statistic manual, which is what we use to diagnose people all the time. And a sociopath isn't in it, uh, just like you know, other colloquialisms aren't really in the DSM. We just kind of use them to describe a broad array of people, right? Like a psychopath, that's not a thing either. Um, so a sociopath, typically, what people mean is um, antisocial personality disorder which is you not only don't relate to people and don't feel guilt, but you also don't have this social awareness or this desire to follow social norms. So this is often characterized by like you want to go and steal a car and then you do, or you know, you want to manipulate a ton of people and start a cult and so you do, right? And I think the big differentiation there is like, and then you do, right? 
um, in talking and hearing what you're talking about, um, I hear you say, like, I just kind of wanted to fit in. I like didn't want people to see behind the facade, you know, and to me, that shows some level of like awareness of social situations. Like, why don't you do these things that you want to do? Why don't you just go off and like live the life of, you know, somebody without a conscience if you truly don't have one right and that's kind of the differentiation in someone who doesn't who has truly has antisocial personality disorder and typically they can't sustain any relationships friendships or otherwise because it's just quite destructive and they're you know often very volatile and very angry and can be kind of dangerous sometimes you know this isn't true for everyone but just like a generalization of someone who's like untreated um and they also are pretty aware of what they're doing generally. Like they know what they're doing and they're not sorry about it. Um, and that results in like big kind of law issues and big criminal issues. And, you know, to my knowledge, you don't really have that history, Cody. <laughs> and the other thing that some people can kind of talk about is narcissistic personality disorder, which is a little bit different. That's like a grandiose sense of self. So like, I am the best, everything I say is right. Everyone is below me. Everyone needs to bow down to me. And they live their life that way. So they tend to gaslight people, which will be like invalidating their feelings and saying like, I never said that. Or like, I can't believe you're crying. Or we react to you're such a drama queen when really they're the problem or really they've done something to hurt someone and not owning up to their emotions and so sometimes people can say sociopath and mean like bits and pieces of both of those things but realistically if you were to be diagnosed with either one of those it's a pretty stark difference from being able to just maintain like typical relationships even if you struggle to maintain relationships like if you have narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder typically like you can't lead a somewhat like structured life in with other people yeah that's that's good that's helpful i don't i don't know if yeah i definitely don't relate to the complete loss of of control in the sense of like my self-preservation still takes hold in that way i think that but i i also feel i've also lived my life in my entire life from this idea and this perspective that i'm never really being myself but myself is not compatible with society but yeah, I, I, there's a part of me that's kind of always wondering if like one day I'm just going to snap and like absolutely violently murder somebody. I don't think it's actually going to happen. I think my self-preservation kind of always keeps me at a distance from that to some degree. But by by your definition, I'm still not a sociopath because I still have somewhat control over my impulsivities for the most part. Instead, I act out by like buying things on the Internet at night that I shouldn't and doing things that I absolutely know is self-destructive, but is in a different kind of way, but is not like against the law. That's really interesting that you keep mentioning this like self-preservation. So I think a lot of the Enneagram is centered around that. A lot of mental health work is centered around self-preservation. And it's also interesting that you've said you didn't learn to be or that you're not an like an empath. You're not like naturally an empath. I don't think anyone is naturally an empath. Like, have you met a two year old? Like they're not an empath, right? <laughs> so a lot of it, I think, often comes from like how we learn in our childhoods, right? That's like. Mm -hmm how we learn to be an empath, how we learn to deal with other people, how we learn to preserve ourselves ultimately, like how we learn to keep ourselves safe. So you mentioned self-destructive behaviors. You mentioned wanting this kind of tumultuous environment around you. And often people who don't experience emotion as deeply or don't allow themselves to experience emotion as deeply tend to seek out those intense experiences because it makes them feel something. And sometimes that's people who have trauma in their background, people who had a baseline in childhood of like really high intensity situations. Maybe it's someone who just really likes adrenaline. Maybe it's someone who for whatever reason is more, you know, familiar with those high intensity situations. And it also can feel like you're in control, right? Like that's what every five wants is to know what's going on and even if it's shitty you know what's going on because you're in control right so yeah. if you can't control it in the way of knowing it you will want to control it in the way of creating havoc because that's still your havoc and still safe for you because it's known and you're able to recognize that it's self-destructive but also it feels more comfortable because you know what's going on Sure. Yeah. I think that that's, that's definitely, that could be part of it. I, I, I didn't really experience any kind of like childhood trauma or anything, except for that my parents were very much like the type of people where like the world is bad. You separate from the world, every, you can't trust anybody in the world. Like it's this kind of like weird separation, but that separation also causes like a certain, a certain view of the world in which people kind of stop being people they start being just things that you 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 do to you use to get what you need and I, and i don't think that my parents do that on, obviously they didn't do that on purpose 
But me and my brother are both very similar in that way, which is like, we've never really fully understood this idea of like feelings and people who are very feelings oriented. And it's really crazy because I'm with somebody who is incredibly feelings oriented and she gets that. She fully understands that when she is crying and she's really upset and she needs me to like hold her and say, it's going to be okay. That like deep down, I don't know if I really mean it. Like, I'm just like, please stop crying. And so, um, (laughs) And so you know, it's, it is it is this struggle and it is this tension for sure. And this idea of like, how do I function in society? I also too believe that I honestly believe that there's probably a undiagnosed bipolar disorder going on in my life that has just kind of also been fueling this fuel on the fire, right? So this impulsivity, this, this hypomania that's also causing impulsivity and also causing um, me to feel out of control and then lash out or do things that are creating control, what, even if that is unhealthy behaviors. And I think that that was much more the case in my life uh, a few years ago. And in the last like two or three years, both self-awareness and the, the desire to feel less dramatic in my life has caused me to just kind of mellow out and just kind of, in, in essence, kind of live in my head more instead of acting out and choosing to act out the things that I feel or think or be impulsive, I think has been uh, the, the majority of <laughs> where my <laughs> my inner energy goes to. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, we all have that part of us that's like, yeah, if I could push that person out a window right now, I probably would. Right. Like we all think that. And I work with people who have like substance use disorders as well. And they're always like, well, I just want to not have the craving. I'm like, that's not realistic. Right. Like maybe it's not realistic for you to ever your first impulse to ever be like, wow, I feel so deeply this like anguish that you're feeling. Right. Like maybe that's just never going to be you. And that's your first reaction. And similar to people, who have substance use problems, I say like, okay, your first reaction doesn't matter. It's the one you act on. So if your second thought is, okay, I want to push this guy out a window. And your second thought is, but what I actually want more is to be able to go to Taco Bell tomorrow and not be in jail. Then like, (laughs) (laughs) then like the second reaction is what matters. Right. And that's often what's lacking in people who have truly narcissistic or narcissistic personality disorder or things like that, where they just don't have that second reaction. And they're like, Oh, it's worth it. Or like, I'm not going to get in trouble or I'm above that. Right. And so you do have that level of awareness, that level of like, even if you don't know how to actually feel like empathetic you want to right people like fives tend to think about how they should feel and think about what they should feel and think about what other people would feel and like think about what the right thing to feel is instead of like actually feeling the feeling um which is two totally different things right and they're useful in different ways but like you're right it doesn't cultivate empathy um and another thing that i thought of when you were saying talking about anger a lot is that anger is like a surface emotion right anger can be an easier outlet for other deeper emotions um kind of talked about the emotion wheel so you can go from anger which is like this big to like something smaller which is maybe like um frustration to something even deeper which is like betrayal or vulnerability and like that one's a really hard one to feel because you're not in control of your vulnerable you're not in control of your betrayed so people who tend to be really self-preservation motivated or people who tend to be really intellectually motivated want to know what's going on and want to prepare for it and if you're vulnerable you cannot do that if you're betrayed you cannot do that if you're angry it's usually not you who sees the brunt of that emotion so you can more easily control the environment sure yeah that makes sense yeah i like that i lost my train of thought take it away josiah (laughs) (laughs) no i was hoping you could say that that last line again that you had said which now that you put me on the spot now i can't (laughs) that I said? Yeah, Liz. Okay. Um, about the, oh, okay. So like, um, people who tend to intellectualize a lot and tend to feel like anger or these surface emotions, they are still in control because they are not the ones who feel the repercussions of their emotion. If you feel betrayed or you feel vulnerable, you have to sit in that emotion and sit in that uncertainty and in that control of someone else. Mm. Man, I've never, I've never considered that before how it's so easy to go to anger even though in general it's you know especially in my my earlier days i wanted to avoid feeling things but it was okay for me to feel anger in a lot of ways and i never thought about the fact that that's because you know it's it's not like the anger is is pointed outwards and so it's not something that i'm really feeling the repercussions of like you said oh man my head's kind of exploding at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a hard one. Yeah. It, it's a hard thing, I think, to realize that 
I don't, I don't know. It's hard for it's hard for me to share space with anyone. And it really, you know, and the weird thing about it is like a part of me like really wants that. You know, we when we were when we were doing recording episodes last night, there were parts of me that really, really enjoyed the parts where we were really connecting and we were really uh, we had kind of like this this rhythm going on. But also, too, there's always part of me that's outside of the situation looking in and going, OK, like this is what it's supposed to be. And this is the narrative that I want to tell. And this is the thing that's happening. I'm always a little bit in control. Uh, and the situations where I'm not in control, it's always uh, there's always a lot more impulsivity. There's always a lot of me trying to scramble to get out of that situation as quickly as possible so that people don't uh, see too much of me or or see too much of of who I might be. Uh, there's, there's, there's a weird, there's, is a weird tension there for sure, which I feel like a lot of people would probably, um, relate to, um, that's, that's, that's listening to this. I think that that's something that's very common. So if somebody is called a sociopath and is listening to this and maybe you call that or maybe even feels like maybe that's what I am. And we've talked about that a little bit and like this idea of like, OK, well, maybe that's not actually the term. Like, what are some of the things that people are experiencing? Like maybe like we can use me. I'm fine. We can use me as the as the, as the full on like the case study, <laughs> the study, the, the case study. Um so what would that be then? And how would one go about like trying to break those patterns or feel the feelings or get into a place that's not this recurring pattern of distance and being outside of outside of the world, outside of the bubble? Right. Good questions. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to preface all this by saying like typically diagnoses don't come this quickly, right? Like you want to get sure. to know someone pretty well and like Definitely. take this with a grain of salt. Um, and this is like not a clinical assessment. Um, but you know, I would say that it seems like you're emotionally unavailable, right? Um, which I'm pretty sure you're aware of, which yeah. can, <laughs> which can be a self-preservation thing, or it can also be, you know, you just have never been taught how to express those emotions. Um, and how I would address, you know, some of those things is I would say, well, let me back up a little bit. I think, you know, maybe there are some antisocial personality disorder traits, right? Wanting to wreak the havoc, wanting to see things explode, wanting to like meddle in people's lives and make their lives horrible, right? Um, and I also think there is, you know, some remorse there. And you did mention you like would really impulsively buy things or really impulsively like do things. And so maybe that's like bipolar too. I don't really know. It kept, you know, depends if you're not sleeping, depends how you're eating, um, depends a lot of other things. But you know, it could also be anxiety driven. I think a lot of times we overlook the part that anxiety can play because if you feel anxious when you're vulnerable or you feel anxious when you're betrayed or you feel anxious when you're not in control, then that can lead you to do a lot of things that you wouldn't typically do. And it's actually better explained by anxiety than it is by another diagnosis. Um, for what you can do for that, um, you specifically, I mean, it seems like you've taken the first step, which is like acknowledging that maybe you want to do that, right? Um, you didn't like outwardly say that, but you have a partner and you have like a good friend that you're recording sessions with. And I assume you have like other people in your life that you care about and like want relationships with. So to some degree, you like want to be there for them in those relationships. Um, so that's really the first step is you have to like acknowledge that you want something different than you have and really pin down what you want that you don't have, because it's going to be really hard to work with a therapist or anybody else if you just want them to like go and see all your problems and fix you, because like that's not our job. That's your job. And so if you're able to come in with like a game plan, then like that's step one. Um, for you, I would also say like really the emotion wheel is like a good tool, even if you're not using it to let me talk a little bit more about this. So it's like a, it's a circle that gets bigger. There are like three levels, right? So the first one is the surface emotions. The second one's a little bit deeper. The third one has like a ton. There's like 400 and something emotions on it. Um, it's a lot of emotions. I know for those of you who don't name them often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how many emotions? 400 like, emotions? There's a lot of emotions. Yeah. I need to download this PDF. Hold on. Right. <laughs> I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. I need to right. see this. Okay. While, yeah. he's, looking, while he's looking at it. Okay. So. Um, 
So I would like suggest maybe like looking through those or looking through other, you know, all the emotion wheels are different depending on like who you, who's you look at, but just looking at them and looking kind of following the train. So maybe you are able to recognize anger first, right? And you're able to say, okay, this situation made me angry. So then you trace it back a little bit and you say like, okay, well, what was I feeling a little bit deeper than anger? Well, maybe I was feeling like frustrated. Like, okay, most people can recognize that. And then beyond that, you were able to say like, okay, I think I could have been feeling, you know, vulnerable because my, like what I care about and my, you know, something that's really important to me was at stake. And I felt like my, you know, morality was there or whatever, or maybe you're able to say like, I feel like I was betrayed because I expected something and it didn't happen. And like the world betrayed me because my expectation wasn't met, you know? And even if you don't actually, even if you aren't able to feel those, just being able to think about like how that might have interacted with the situation you were in is a good start, right? Like we talked about fives are good at intellectualizing. So take a little bit deeper, start thinking about these other emotions, start thinking about what those might feel like. And then once those are in your head, and when you're in the situation, you might eventually be able to say like, oh, actually, I think I'm feeling betrayal. And then like, oh, I actually think I'm feeling like really vulnerable right now. And then if it's someone that you care about and someone that you trust, you can voice that to them and say like, wow, this is me sharing a part of myself that's not in control. I feel really nervous about this. I want to tell you this and then I want to stop the conversation, <laughs> right? Like baby steps. And so then like eventually. Okay. So, okay. Just to recap, because this was a, <laughs> this was probably a really big bomb for most people listening. <laughs> um, so what you're saying is it's not that we're not feeling the feelings generally as fives. We're, I'm going to generalize a little bit. It's not that we're not feeling them. It's that we don't have the, the uh, reference for those feelings. So we feel these things that are basically untitled files that are mm -hmm. filing into our file system and we don't know what they are. So we put them in the uh, uncategorized folder. Mm -hmm. But if we create, even intellectually, create the full, the file, I'm going to, I'm going to use this as an analogy with, uh, with computers. Cause maybe some people might be able to, I, I can get this cause as someone who's a DJ and, and also like someone who does music, this makes sense to me. Um, the way that I, the, the way that, uh, you can have a sound file and, but that sound file doesn't mean anything. It's just a title unless it has the root path to the actual file. It doesn't matter. It's just the name. It's just a thing. It's an empty nothing until you have this root path to the actual uh, file that does something. And then you're like, oh, okay, this actually makes sense. Um, and I feel like that's, that's where my mind went when you were talking about this, which is really interesting to me, this idea of like, we feel all these things all the time. We just don't know what they are until intellectually we can, we can try to intellectualize this idea of like, oh, this feeling looks and feels like this. These are the symptoms of this feeling. So then when later on we can try to train ourselves, I guess, in this idea of like when we're feeling this thing, oh, wait, some of these symptoms fit this. Is this what we're feeling? And that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't track all the computer language, but I think that <laughs> I think that that was probably a good analogy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and you can you can you can. There's a lot of ways you can say it, but basically, what you're saying is like we. So I definitely. So I mean, obviously, everybody feels feelings, right? Like I feel feelings. Right. I have very much like feelings. Most of my feelings um, are. Um, self-centered i will say i know that and i am able to acknowledge that to some degree um i will say the majority of the version that i gave in the beginning of this episode i gave kind of anecdotally because i feel like i've actually grown a lot in the last two or three years in a way that it does create the the disconnect with how i've described myself and how i am actually now is the fact that i have self-awareness that i didn't have three years ago or yeah. four years ago or whatever and so because of that reason there is a disconnect there whereas I spent the first 30 years of my life having no self-awareness whatsoever and just completely just like I was just this I don't even know it's just like this thing that couldn't be controlled like I was just I was AWOL all the time <laughs> and was awful and terrible to every human being in my life and then, then there's a certain point where I realized maybe this is actually like not the existence that I want in the time that I have on this earth right so I start exploring this idea of like okay, well, people feel all these things and people have all these feelings and all these thoughts and all these dreams. What does that look like? And what could that look like in my life if I were to feel those things? And I started there and decided, okay, maybe, maybe I have felt those things. I just didn't know what to call them. And so I definitely, I definitely kind of track with that and feel that for sure. At some degree, I, I still, 
constantly have things. So I'm like <laughs> the partner that I am with Madison is she has two moms who are amazing people who are very sensitive and very, um, they're very much like the, the two halves of who she is as a person. And she is literally in every way whatsoever, the, the, the antithesis of me as a person. And, and we've talked about that to some degree. Like we've talked about, like in the first season of this, this podcast, we talked about like how, like, this is actually a really great, uh, analogy is like opening presents. I've, I've brought this up a few times, but the, literally this is like my hell, uh, <laughs> this idea of like sitting in a circle and like everybody like just feeling their feelings over a present and, and, and really expressing your emotions in this reaction of opening something that you didn't know what was in the box, but you're opening the box and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I never, this is so great. I love this thing that you gave me. I just, Oh my God, give hugs all around. Right. <laughs> um, but for me, I'm just like, cool. <laughs> and honestly, that's not, it, it's not exclusive to the situation. My parents also thought every single Christmas, I hated everything they gave me. <laughs> it's all, always been a theme in my life because I have no emotional reaction to anything that I've ever done, unless I'm very passionate about it. And I'm on a one-on-one -on -one conversation. A good example is right before I came here, I was at an, my last account for work and we were over, you know, drinks, having this very intense conversation about podcasts, oddly enough, and uh, different topics and things that you could do for podcasts. And I was very passionate. I was very emotional and, and very engaged in that situation. So uh, obviously somebody who is, it has this like disconnect from life would not feel the need to be so engaged and so passionate and so uh, putting their emotions on the line in certain situations like that, I would imagine. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, no, I I spent most of my life thinking I was a sociopath. I don't actually think that I am. And over the last three years, I definitely don't think I am. I love the allure of being a sociopath. I love the idea of it. And I also love the profile of that and deeply want to be one to some degree. But I'm not. I like I know I'm not because I have self-awareness and I don't kill people. <laughs> I just want to. So if you, get, I, if you ever get subpoenaed to court, this is really gonna be a great sound bite. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I am now guilty of all things anybody wants to like, we can just edit this podcast. <laughs> I, I've been more honest in this particular podcast than I've ever been ever, I would say. Um, and I think that my my probably my worst um, uh, transgressions, if we want to say, is probably just my honestly, it's one of the reasons why I stayed in the religious circles so much is because I always felt superior in those circles because I always knew that it was full of shit. <laughs> and so like that was an easy place to manipulate people because of emotionally charged uh, environments. <laughs> And being a like pastoral worship figure, it's the reason why I am absolutely 100%. I don't know. I'm sorry, Liz, if you're even remotely religious, but like I'm absolutely 100% against all like Christian evangelical religion. I think it's a, a cancer and, and destroys people's lives. And that's, I have a lot of layers to that, obviously, um, and bias. And you have to accept that bias. But I've just seen behind the curtain so much. And also, I was one of those people. And also knew that it was just like, it was all just this, this game. Like everything's a game. It's, it's, it's a dangerous place. That's a minefield for people who are vulnerable. And uh, there are a lot of people that have there. I, I would, and maybe you can, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually feel like there's a lot of people who uh, uh, ha actually do have these disorders that, that gravitate towards religious circles that I have genuinely met. And it was like, there is a deep, like the like hair stands on the back of your neck. Like you, 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 there's a scent, there's a, I sense there's something very different about you and you're manipulating people and hurting people. And that happens a lot in religious circles for sure, because it's, it's a, it's a dangerous place and people are very vulnerable naturally. I mean, guilt is a powerful tool if you don't feel it, right? Guilt is a powerful tool if you know how to make others feel it. So you mentioned that you didn't feel guilt in your religious experience. So that makes you less vulnerable to that religious leader, right? Or less vulnerable to being able to 
fall into whatever they're wanting you to believe, whether it's like, if you give more money, you're holy. If you confess, you're holy, right? Um, which is also interesting because um, on the other side of the Enneagram, like the ones want to feel like really good, right? So a lot of them are going to be attracted to like Catholicism. You have like an order, you have a structure, you know, you can check off the boxes. Whereas fives say like, I see through you, I don't feel this, I see what you're doing and I hate you for it, right? And like, <laughs> and kind of being able to take a step back and look at it from almost a less emotionally invested perspective does kind of give you the ability to say like you are lying like that's not true and i think that's true in other situations too the fives are like more in tune with others the way others are reacting to situations because they don't have a strong emotional reaction so they will see things really kind of objectively and a pretty powerful way to say like, actually, I don't think this situation is good for you. Or like, actually, I think this person is like pretty manipulative. And number one, you probably know because you might have been that person at the time, or you probably know because you're not emotionally invested in whatever's going on. So they're mad at you. Like, that doesn't matter. You just like are calling it like you see it. Part of what I think, you know, like the, the, the lack self-awareness brings a lot of things, right? So it brings a lot of, um, pretty pretty easily being able to intellectualize the idea of where a lot of the the root causes of a lot of the things that may get in the way of building relationships and functioning in society as a healthy human being a good example that's not even remotely related to the situation so when you're building a routine for me and this is every you know everybody right like it takes so much time before you build that routine but for me personally and i would imagine a lot of the people listening to this podcast it has to make sense intellectually before I can actually accept it as a, as a routine that I'm going to uh, adopt. And so, you know, a good example of this, this is a really weird, stupid thing, but a long time ago, many years ago, I never understood this idea of like closing like the, the shower curtains when you're done with the shower. <laughs> like I would just leave them open because I didn't think about it. And it was just a thing. And I didn't really, it was just a, you know, an, a mindless thing that I would do. And then one day it was brought to my attention that the reason why you close them is because you don't want the black mold to uh, build up in between the the folds of the, the shower curtains. And then you have to change it out and you have to buy a new shower curtain. It's a whole thing. And I was like, man, that makes a whole lot of sense. And because I intellectualized that idea, the routine was overnight, I could adopt it. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm going to do that from now on. And so I just constantly just close the shower curtain when I'm out of the shower. And I actually apply that to all areas of my life. <laughs> if it's not, if, it, if I can't intellectualize the benefit of why I would do the thing because it makes sense, it's really, really hard for me to build it as a routine and to build and, and, or to build any kind of healthy pattern in my life if it doesn't make sense to me intellectually. And so until I have processed and intellectualized and, and had this whole plan of like this whole like diagram in my mind of like, okay, so I did all these things and this wasn't working for me and this wasn't actually benefiting me and for the future. So therefore I have to change all these things. And then I have to adopt this idea of like, okay, now I have to change all these things, even though I hate it, I don't want to change. I don't want to do these things. So I'm going to do these things because it's actually better for me. If I don't get to that place, changing anything about my life or the way that I'm going to be is way harder, like way harder um, because I'm just not going to listen. It just goes in one ear and out the other. And that's always been kind of a challenge for me. And uh, that goes for anything emotional as well until it actually makes sense for me ben to, to benefit me. And honestly, I haven't, I've never had a situation in my life that, that I cared or was invested in emotionally until I was with the person that I'm with now. And I, I interpret love and affection and companionship through the lens of, I finally found somebody whom I can't imagine my life without that person. And so therefore I don't want to lose that thing. I don't want to lose that idea, that presence, that, that, that the thing that I currently have, I don't want to lose that thing. Therefore, I'm going to try to figure out ways to preserve that thing because I don't want to lose that thing. And of course that's, you know, that's early stages of, of love and affection. It's cause it's still kind of benefiting me, right? Like it's still kind of self-absorbed <laughs> to some degree, but because of that reason in small doses and in small steps, I'm trying to figure out how to preserve what I currently have in that very and very, very, very small minuscule steps leads to this idea of like, okay, so I have to do these things that care about another person or do things that make that other person feel special or feel loved or whatever. And so it's, it's still intellectualized, but does that mean that it's any less sincere, I guess, 
Yeah, I would say no, it's not any less sincere. I think we all do everything because it benefits us. You're just more aware of it, right? right. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that does true altruism exist? I don't know. I don't think it does, right? Like, you know, everybody enjoys what they do or you wouldn't do it. And everybody gets something out of it or you wouldn't do it, right? If your partner didn't make sense to be with, if you didn't get something from them, you wouldn't do it, right? Um, and I think also kind of having this need to intellectualize things before you're willing to do them probably also comes from like a childhood where you were told like validate my feelings and feel my feelings because if you don't you're not good and like then you just don't care if you're good or not then you just don't care if you're gonna like that doesn't matter to you anymore it needs to make sense because the emotions that that person was portraying didn't make sense right guilt trips often don't so you're like okay well I don't like how I'm feeling when you say that. So then I must not like how I'm feeling whenever somebody tells me something based purely on emotions, because that's your trained experience with it. So instead you're going to say like, convince me, convince me, I need to do it. Convince me that I want to keep this convince me that I want to make you happy because when I've tried to do that in the past, it's number one, not been enough. And number two left us both feeling shitty. So like, no, prove to me that this is worth putting my effort into. Right. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, some people feel like really wholeheartedly infatuated and love and that's fantastic for them and a lot of people don't and a lot of people their relationships make sense and every day they're more convinced why they want to be with that person for you know real reasons that are pretty tangible and i don't think that makes it any less special i think it makes it special in a different way because you are turning it over in your head all the time to make sure that you care about this person to make sure that it's still what you want right so essentially every day in small ways you're making these decisions again and again and again right where people can just go on feelings and that's wonderful and often fleeting yeah yeah for <laughs> sure that's that's all very very good material <laughs> <laughs>we all know that our parents shape us right and we all know that our childhood shapes us and that's not a crazy thing you know my mom very regularly says like i just hope that i was a good mother i hope i didn't ruin you as a as an adult and i always have a hard time responding to any version of this because i'm just like i mean yeah you did shape me you did cause the things both good and bad in me right as a person and it's also why i'm terrified of having children because i'm gonna fuck up every person that i raise i just know i will because that's all it's what all parents are doing josiah is fucking up his children in some way right now and that's what this, this very second yeah this very <laughs> by, by talking to you cody <laughs> And somehow I'm probably fucking them up too, <laughs> your distance, you know. Um, and and I'll own that because yeah, it's fine. But it, it's 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 part of society. It's part of what we do, and it's part of how we kind of it's kind of how we how we live our legacy and live on forever. But um, humanity is flawed, and I guess. And so I think the the hard part of that is owning that, and also owning that within ourselves, and also our parents owning that, right? Like I think that's that's the thing where it's like there's it's inevitable. You're gonna do. You're gonna fuck up you're gonna you're gonna make a mistake and you're not gonna be perfect and as people we're gonna be imperfect and i actually think that fives have a hard time with that just in in similar ways that ones do ones i have that perfectionistic thing right i've always i misidentified for a long time in my life as a one because i thought one i was coming out of religious world right so an idealistic mindset was easy to misidentify with but also too fives have this kind of not talked about perfectionism within their own selves where they hold themselves to this standard because whether they have a narcissistic it's not like a narcissistic disorder necessarily but like fives have narcissistic leaning a lot of the times right and i've definitely had that but i also because of that reason i'm so passionately infuriated by real and pure narcissism Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where like I could like passionately beat someone to death who really has narcissism who really gaslights like I do have idealism I do have uh, a moral compass to some degree that I choose to live by that's actually external from how I feel or think um, that I'm like you know what Th these are the things that I want to live by and I'm going to choose to live by these things and it's actually more intentional because of that reason it's not something that's coming from within where I'm just like 
It's not some God who I'm reading and saying like, these are the things I'm supposed to believe or not believe. It's actually a set of principles that I think actually is for the better, the betterment of all people around me and for myself. And I'm going to choose to believe and act on those things. And because of that reason, there is this moral compass to some degree. And if I don't abide by that, it doesn't necessarily make me feel bad. I just know that I'm now not acting within the realm of getting along with my community, if that makes sense. So it, it, I may not feel bad about it, but also I know that if I'm going to continue on and have a community of people that I do care about or care about me, and then I probably should do these things. And of course, we could go on and on about this it's interesting how you can just be in your head about that. And just, I get lost in idealism a lot. And I think that that's uh, because of the fact that it's so intellectualized. Um, and that's actually where I find goodness in the world as well as all of the bad in the world. That's, that, that's the black and white is the idealism. And which is why it was so easy for me to I, uh, identify as a one when I was deeply and truly a five. And um, and I didn't know it until after I was out of uh, religious circles, I think. And so that was that that was a, was a really interesting thing. I don't know if anybody else has ever had that kind of that kind of journey, I guess. But I feel like that's something that doesn't get talked about enough is that five still feel this sense, I think, of idealism from my experience talking with other fives and this idea of like we can still fight for the things that are right, even if we don't feel the empathy to be involved in the the uh, the trenches of those things and be on the ground uh, fighting the front lines with those people. I think I, I still feel deeply what is wrong and right in the world and identify with those things and want those things to be true. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that goes back to asking if that if the love you have now is any less true because it's not, you know, filled with infatuation. Is your goodness in the world any less true because it's not filled with empathy and filled with like this heart wrenching, like gut pulling compassion? And no, I think it's not right. I think you're kind of good in the world for you know lack of a better word is truly thought out right you're saying i want to make my community better and i'm going to take intentional steps to do that right i want to be a better person to leave a better legacy and i'm gonna make intentional steps to do that and that's like not a level of cognition that a lot of people can get to and i think that's not a level of cognition that a lot of numbers reach like you think about fours and they're like oh i'm passionate about this thing and i'm gonna love it so hard right and like that's great and so needed and not what a five is ever gonna do like <laughs> like that's just not the good a five is gonna do in the world right like right it's gonna be like you're loving that so well and not systematically so like let me help you right <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, i'm gonna go ahead and say this is not the last time you're gonna be on this podcast <laughs> i'm honored thank you yeah. no i think and it's yeah. because like even it, my day today perfectly exemplifies what you just said every personality and every shade of every number has a person has a place in kind of the way things work and just the way you said like fours the way fours and fives interact just i will obviously relate to this more way more personally <laughs> i do um but in, in that same way you know he's with a four wing five i'm with a six wing five and i have a five wing six that anxiety definitely drives a lot of how i get through life and how I make decisions. And I didn't, the thing about it is what's so crazy is not only did I, I misidentify as a one for so much of my life, but when I did identify as a five, the six wing did not come at me um, very early in the process because I didn't think I had anxiety. It wasn't until I woke up one day and realized that my heart was palpitating and my throat felt like I was someone who was strangling me and everything, the walls were closing in on me that I realized what is happening? I think I'm dying. I go to the doctor and she's like, maybe you have anxiety. Let's try these medications. And things got better. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, just like you're saying with feelings and how you have a reference point for that, I started to have a reference point for what anxiety looked like and how it manifested in my life. And I go, oh, this is anxiety. This is what this looks like. And it was easier for me to identify that and be able to respond to that, whether it's through medication or through meditation or whatever. And uh, I feel that way 
uh, I think that a lot of fives probably have that issue because of the fact that we so often intellectualize so much of our life and separate ourselves intentionally to be able to process because we know, I know that personally, I can speak personally from my own experience and my own place in this world that in most situations leading up to this point in my life, I've been often described as like the rock or the anchor or the person that people go to to uh, make sure that they're still grounded and not getting too lost in the clouds right like this person who um when they're good to have on the team because they can see the bigger picture and go oh we're going the wrong direction right like well, this isn't what we should be doing because this is not going to end well for everybody and um but because of that reason i also don't feel the emotional connection of of the 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 greater kind of romanticism of life right but i also deeply want to feel that i was actually talking to just josiah about this last night about this idea of like you know sports are romanticized there's a lot of things that are romanticized in life and it's i i deeply want to feel those things i'm infatuated with this idea and the story of romanticism from a place that's not always about like one person falling in love with another person right but it's by like someone falling in love with an idea or a concept and so it's a weird way of like uh, I, I mentioned uh, to him last night this idea i don't know if i've ever mentioned this on the podcast but the like if anybody's ever seen the movie moneyball and it's, I don't give a shit about baseball. Let me just go ahead and point that out. Like, I don't I really don't care about baseball. This movie made me care about baseball only for the movie, only for the span of two hours, because it, I remember this very distinctly, this, uh, the idea of like the main character, Brad Pitt's character was just like, you know, in the beginning, he's like, you can't be romantic about baseball. Like there's no, there's like, and it's all about this analytics and mathematics. So it's literally, it, this movie speaks to fives. <laughs> um, and then towards the end, you know, everything that he ever wanted to happen works out and he proves everybody wrong. And he's actually the smartest person in the room when it comes to this, because everything that everybody told him was going to be wrong actually was right. And he changed the entire world when it comes to how people look at baseball as a true story. And then he says in this one scene, how could you not be romantic about baseball? And it's this idea that like in that war, in that moment, intellectualism became romanticism. And that's everything I've ever wanted in real life. And it never <laughs> happened. <laughs> and so uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just a, it's a strange experience to feel that that wall and that separation constantly in my life and also feel like, you know, as a five, I want to be a part of something bigger. I want to be a part of that romanticism, but to never feel it in my daily life and also feel like I'm always on the outside and to even maybe feel like maybe I don't deserve that. Right. Or maybe I don't, I don't, uh, I'm too alien to that world and maybe I'll never feel those things. That's a story that we tell ourselves. That's the narrative that we constantly are reinforcing. And that's something that we constantly have to overcome and realize that, you know, it's okay to be, an intellectual in the world that's intellectualizing the world and the situations for ourselves and for those around us. And that's, if that's the role we play, it doesn't mean that we can't feel the things and also intellectualize them. Totally. Yeah. And I think that, I think there's so many good points there. Like one is that, you know, I hear that you're feeling, I'm going to go back to the emotion wheel. I hear that you're feeling kind of lonely and isolated there. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, oh, there we go. Yep. So <laughs> you're that you're feeling kind of lonely and isolated, which is like a really pretty hard feeling to feel. Right. And I think that part of that is society saying like, you know, we have the notebook, we have these other Nicholas Spark movies, we have, you know, whatever these are that are like, this is the epitome. This is the ideal. This is what you should be. And this is what you should want. You should have this passion and the zest and follow your heart. Right. And then the people who are following their head are kind of just left, you know, manning the camera for the people who's telling someone to follow their heart. Right. Mm, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's so crucial to have the statistics behind the reason why people are able to care so much about things, right? Like you need to know that what you care about is, is going to work. You know, you need to know that what you're trying to advocate for is doing productive things. You need a budget for, you know, a campaign. You need all of these things behind the scenes that are going into making this romantic persona, right? And I think that the part that doesn't get romanticized and doesn't get talked about is how important it is for people to be the backstage, right? For people to kind of come and 
make things romantic and make things look wonderful and beautiful. And, you know, I hear you saying like falling in love with ideas and with things. And then in the beginning, when you were doing your check-in, you said like, you're doing all these things that give you life, right? That sounds pretty romantic and ideas, right? That you're getting to like dance and intertwine your life and all of these really interesting, incredible ways, right? So maybe society is saying that you should feel isolated and you should feel different and you're not romantic enough, but it sounds to me like you've carved out like a pretty romantic way to interact with life and interact with these things that you care so passionately about even if the way that you were raised and the way that you were you know emotionally cultivated does not behoove you to feel romantic towards other people that doesn't make it any less of an important romantic feeling to cultivate like the betterment of the world through like ideas and things sure so yeah i hear you just saying that you like care so deeply in a different way and it's really exciting to hear you exploring that you know like however many years in <laughs> and kind of growing through that because i think really that's where you find joy and really that's where everybody at some point finds like how they want to live their life right and like stops living in their shoulds and starts living in what they actually want to mm. yeah yeah <laughs> for sure I, and i think that's really important too that this idea that we can break away like our parents mean mean well right and they but also too, and I see this all the time, you know, our family, it's, it's easy to be the most comfortable and, and the most vulnerable without realizing it. And because of that reason, we easily pass on our own insecurities and our own uh, negative uh, features of ourselves to them because we do it without our uh, defenses up. And I think that's, you know, that's what my parents have done. And, and, and I, and that in, in a weird way, that's kind of an intimacy that we kind of constantly don't acknowledge and ignore yeah. and don't want to be a part of, but because that is a direct line to our most insecure and vulnerable places. And so that's, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to realize. It's a hard thing to acknowledge. Yeah. And I think fives have this incredible ability to be patchwork people, right? In the best way. So if you're right. conscious of everything that you're putting into your personality, then you're going to pick and choose the characteristics that you want, right? Sometimes you choose wrong. Sometimes you try to break up people at a bar and that's your personality for the night and you laugh about it later, right? right. <laughs> and sometimes you like really intentionally cultivate like, okay, I want this person's humor. I want this person's like their way that they express compassion. I want this person's creativity right and then you're able to really think about it and think like okay how do I become that like how did they become that how do I do that but better right and in that way you can provide like a really interesting conglomerate of things that's you know unique but also like kind of reinnovated and like actually a systematic working of the important and the like systematic working of the people who are expressing emotions but you're like the follow through with that right like <laughs> you're sure, like what? the action behind it well, and, 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 and being able to uh, integrate to eight, like I think fives, it's so hard. I so love in disintegrating to a seven. Like, I, <laughs> I love, Who doesn't? Yeah. I love the chaos of it. I love the impulsivity of it. I love being the unhealthy person in that situation. Like there's something about the, the creating a mess makes me incredibly happy when I'm creating the mess. And then mm. when I create the mess, I'm like, fuck, what did I do? Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to deal with this. But it's the eight that cleans up the mess, right? Um, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you dedicate your life to cleaning up everyone's mess. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I think that that's really interesting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm really in a place in my life right now where I'm learning how to integrate to an eight and how to figure out how to um, create in, in my life a, a path forward in which I can actually follow through with the things that I want to do and not just be this person who wallows in what everyone has always said in the narrative that I've reinforced in uh, disintegrating into a seven and just being like, okay, I'm, I'm always the problem child in the situation. I'm always the reason why everybody's falling apart. And instead being the reason why both my life and everyone around me is moving forward. And that's such an interesting place for me as a, as a person, because I've never been there before. And so it's uncharted territory as a five to be like, what is a, what does a healthy five look like? 
and just yeah. kind of been a one step ahead of me in this into some degree. <laughs> and so it's been it's been really interesting because for most of my I feel like a good portion of our friendship, um, he was always a little bit ahead of me in the, his journey, and so I resented him for it. And 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 we didn't want to I didn't want to talk to him, and I would cut him off, and I would distance myself from him in that way. Uh, because I didn't want to let him know exactly where I was because, well, he's not, he can't relate to me. He's never been here, but he was probably just there. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. And I, and I recognized what you were doing too. Yeah. I didn't exactly like called out. I didn't want to be called out about it either as a five for sure. Naturally. Like, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, and so that's been a really interesting thing where I've crossed over that, that line of now I embrace the idea of being, called out and being like, you know, I want people in my life who's going to fully call me out on my bullshit and be like, you know what? You're being a fucking idiot right now. Like, stop being, stop doing what you're doing. This is not who you want to be. This is not what you want to try, want to do right now. This is not a part of your goals. And I think that kind of goes back to you feeling like you're don't deserve to be enough or don't deserve to be like a real person. Right. Like right. that's your narrative It's like, man, I fooled everybody. I can't be enough. Nobody really likes me like that. Right. And now you're kind of coming full circle and you're like, Oh my God, did I do it? Like it was me. I did, you know, <laughs> I did it without actually thinking about it or I actually fully intellectualized it. And I did the thing where I did care about the things and I cared about doing a good job. And part mm -hmm. of doing a good job is actually caring about the people, right. Mm -hmm. And caring about their needs and whatever. And in turn, that actually made me a, a good person. <laughs> yeah. Some people have to feel first and then they're allowed to think about it. And then some people have to think about it and then they can feel it. And both are fine. I just think that one is talked about more than the other, right? The former is typically what we tend to lean towards and fives don't follow that track. And that doesn't make it any less valid or your growth any less, you know, upward trajectory. It just makes it different. It's worth saying, I think it's worth mentioning that specific, that specific thing. I, I think it's worth emphasizing as um, kind of, we close this conversation is I think this is a really good place to end it on is that fives. I, I think that fives probably feel so alien and so apart. So, so, um, swimming against the current constantly because of that exact reason society has this standard of like you feel the things and then you intellect intellectualize right like all romantic comedies show this right like we feel the things we get into the situation and how did we get here and now we have to think through it with our best friend over ice cream or, or beer or whatever and that's the opposite for fives we intellectualize first and then we decide that we can feel and that doesn't mean that it's any less uh, authentic. It's actually in, in, if, if someone can see it in the right light, it's more authentic to some degree, right? Like we really thought out what we were going to feel and we chose to feel it anyway. And that's a crazy and ridiculous thing that could happen. It's a miraculous thing that could happen in humanity that we mm -hmm. could choose to feel the things that we feel instead of feeling them and then having to deal with the repercussions afterwards. And that's, Maybe why we feel different from everyone always. It's not that we don't feel, it's that we feel after we've chosen to feel that way. Yeah. And that you think about it and you still choose to feel that way is pretty remarkable because some feelings are like not great and some feelings are really vulnerable. So I would say, you know, if a five chooses to feel something for you or about a situation, like don't take it lightly because they've thought through it and they've thought through the possible repercussions and they've still chosen to do it. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's that's a good place to end. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we we've gone uh, way longer than I anticipated. Liz, thank you so much for all of your time. Um, Liz, I, I have one final question that I wanted to um, sort of sign off with. Like if you could you know, kind of take where we are, what we've talked about and sum up, what advice would you give to fives who... <laughs> Uh, have can relate to us in that sometimes we feel like a sociopath um if 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 you could if you could give any type type of advice or encouragement of how to move forward um what would that be I would think I would say first stop believing that you're a sociopath. <laughs> you are not. You are just different in the way that everybody here is different, right? Um, this whole community here of fives. And I would say that you 
should really think about what vulnerability you're scared of and then think about what you have to lose if you don't feel it. If you're scared of that relationship, what you actually have to lose is a lifetime of happiness. If you're scared of the vulnerability within yourself to admit something, what you actually have to lose is getting to know and love yourself fully, right? Like you have a lot more to lose by not being vulnerable and not feeling your feelings than you do by feeling them and having whatever short-lived repercussions there are, right? So I don't think you're a sociopath. I think that you're scared and I think that that's hard and I think that there's hope. All right, that's, it, it, it's decided. I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the next one is a true crime podcast. Nobody knows that. But. <laughs> Part two, Cody. Cody <laughs> Part two, we check the closet. <laughs> well, uh, this is this has been fantastic, and we really appreciate you coming and uh, you know diagnosing us here online unofficially. Not not. I, I wait. I have to put the disclaimer. There is no di- diagnosis made here. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> helping us, helping us self-diagnose. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, with just fantastic conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I myself had some really big bombshell ahas in this as well. The, the feelings chart being uh, the source of a lot of it. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. And um, if you want to uh, tell everybody where they can connect with you online and, and follow your work, uh, where would they, where would they go? Sure. So um, my Instagram is private because I'm a therapist and people don't need to see my pictures that I post. But if you request to follow me, I will let you. You just have to request it. Um, it's Liz, L-I-Z-Z dot et all dot et dot all like it would be in a paper. Um, and then my full name is Elizabeth Landry. You can find me on Facebook. And I also have a blog called Your Honest Therapist if you're interested in reading anything that I write. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. Hey, it's Josiah, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you're the type of person who likes helping others, would you do us a favor and share it with other people like you? If you found value in this conversation, they will too. I also want to give a special thanks to our community members who shared their voice with us in this episode. If anything in this conversation has resonated with you, or if you have any further thoughts or questions, I want to invite you to join our community of other people like you and continue the conversation at Enneagram5.com. 